the Twitter files, the stories they reveal and the ones they don't. When misinformation is the MO, Israel kills another Palestinian, then spins the story. And when journalists get slapped, legal cases as tools of harassment. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we provide explanatory journalism about journalism. We begin with the Twitter files. It's a big, complicated story. So consider this a primer. Elon Musk and right-wingers in the U.S. have long complained the platform is biased in favor of liberal voices at the expense of conservative ones. So after Musk bought the company, he gave a group of selected journalists access, albeit limited, to the company's internal documents, some of the things the previous owners got up to, presumably to prove his point. The stories that have since come out have touched on much more than the issue of institutional bias. They have revealed that Twitter has been pressured for years by various governments, security services, and the Pentagon to suppress, moderate, and in some cases amplify the content you see on your timeline. There's another side to this, though given that Musk and Twitter were so selective with what they chose to hand over to reporters. The question becomes, what are we not seeing in the Twitter files? In the words of Elon Musk, here we go. Starting with what the Twitter files are not. The Twitter files is all about the removal of then-President Trump from the social media platform. Stories about Hunter Biden, his laptop, and his emails. They are not just about Donald Trump or Joe Biden's son, Hunter. There is much more there. Both the FBI and CIA have moderated content on the social media platform. The Nor are the Twitter files just about U.S. politics, the way the platform's former team under Jack Dorsey handled contentious content from Republicans or Democrats, and how Twitter does that now under new ownership, Elon Musk's. And despite the slightly aspirational uppercase branding, it is not as though the reporting team infiltrated Twitter. It was more like a guided tour. Even the moniker Twitter files, which is sort of attempts to put this in the same category as perhaps the Pentagon Papers or the Snowden documents, this is just a very different situation. These are primarily documents and materials that Elon Musk, a billionaire, um, and handed to hand-picked journalists Musk felt would tell the story in a way that, that suited him. Um, and that's not to say that the documents aren't newsworthy, but it's certainly not exactly transparency when it is the CEO of the company that's deciding whom to give access to and what to give them access to. Now, depending on your news outlet of choice, this was either a huge bombshell or a nothing burger. Americans have had trouble processing political information that isn't neatly something that makes uh, Republicans look terrible or make Democrats look terrible. The, the much more interesting material falls into neither of those boxes. It's the FBI, officials from the Pentagon seeking to have certain accounts banned, ideas that they wanted amplified. Sometimes officials at Twitter gave in, sometimes they argued back. It wasn't a one-way street, but there is a basic hypocrisy. The, the company had said this was not something it did, and then it turned out it very much was. We also know that even on these individual topics, only seg segments of, of documents and packages were given. And it wasn't actually a serious exercise in highlighting and illuminating the threats at Twitter, exposing it, and sanitizing it. It was much more a series of topics that are mostly right-wing. 
The Twitter files started coming out December 2nd. Bit by bit, post by post, they have exposed the platform's relationship with the American security establishment, including the FBI. Starting in 2019, the agency communicated with Twitter thousands of times to get some accounts taken down, others made more prominent, and it paid the company more than $3 million, reputedly, for legal costs incurred. Moreover, a former FBI lawyer was in charge of Twitter's legal department until December 6th, when Musk fired him. In the files, the FBI repeatedly refers to the OGA, the other government agency, which is presumed to be the CIA. For its part, the CIA pushed Twitter for more social media surveillance and censorship of certain accounts. The Eighth Post, tweeted by journalist Lee Fang on December 20th, lifted the lid on Twitter's dealings with CENTCOM, the central command unit at the Pentagon. CENTCOM repeatedly convinced the platform to whitelist certain accounts, actively promoting them so more users would see them in order to boost the U.S. military's influence overseas, including in countries at war like Yemen and Syria. What Lee Fang's reporting showed, Twitter was aware that CENTCOM was attempting to get a number of accounts approved and in some cases verified, uh, and to ensure that those accounts would not be detected or, um, or face consequences. These accounts appear to have been uh, uh, given special status without the disclosure that is required under, under Twitter's rules to operate completely uh, under the radar. Readers would not have known that they were US government uh, operated. They were effectively able to misrepresent who they were um, and conceal their state affiliations. Officials with CENTCOM had been routinely asking the company to amplify those messages that were basically pro-U.S. messages in Arabic so that Arabic Twitter uh, had a more kind of pro-U.S. cast than it might otherwise have been. What you're seeing is a pretty casual and almost daily set of interactions between national security and military agencies and Twitter seeking to manage speech. Anytime you have agencies like the FBI uh, or the Pentagon seeking to tweak what people hear, there's some real propaganda going on and it should, should raise some alarms. News consumers tracking this story, the more discerning ones, will have noticed what the Twitter files have failed to reveal. All the reporters involved are American, which may explain their US-centric approach. Although the lack of examination of governments like Saudi Arabia may well come down to Elon Musk and self-interest. Under Mohammed bin Salman's de facto leadership, and long before Musk's takeover, the Saudi government planted operatives at Twitter's San Francisco headquarters. That's an angle that screams out for more coverage. But the Saudis are the platform's second biggest investors, and have been for years. Why would Elon Musk allow Twitter to release dirt on them and bite the hand that feeds money into the machine? 
It wasn't just that Saudi Arabia planted spies at Twitter and are some of the biggest investors in Twitter. Former Twitter employees who are Saudi who are indicted by the US government for the activities that they undertook at Twitter, mostly in order to, to crack down on Saudi dissidents. No Twitter files have reported on this and their state-backed manipulation uh, portion of their website that's supposed to disclose state-backed uh, information efforts to manipulate the platform uh, hasn't been updated since Musk took over. When I look at what's not being told, especially you know, using Saudi Arabia as a perfect example, we know Musk is seeking investment is in particular from some of these state funds. Um, one, he already has it, two, he wants more of it. Um, what does that mean? Well, it means if he's not sharing the documents, he seems to turn a blind eye to some of the malfeasance we already know existed. Um, what does that mean for future threats? We absolutely need to be asking questions about why there isn't information in the Twitter files about the role that the Saudi government or the Israeli government or the Turkish government or other governments have been playing in attempting to influence Twitter's content moderation practices. And we can assume that they have been, and yet that information was not released. This is exactly why we should be concerned about the lack of transparency and how these documents have come to light, because it's impossible for us to know whether that information just isn't there or whether Musk decided not to release it for a specific reason. We know about it because of Matt Taibbi, who has been at the center of it. The journalists leading the reporting on the Twitter files, Matt Taibbi, formerly of Rolling Stone. The government was in the censorship business in a huge way. And Lee Fang of The Intercept have been accused of coming at the story with a right-wing bias. I, I get that, that Elon Musk is an unusual, controversial source, but I've done so many stories with other kind of unusual sources. Well, what matters is, you know, is it a public interest story? Does, do More problematic than ideology, though, was the arrangement the limitations placed upon the reporters. We submitted interview requests to Taibi and Fang, neither agreed. They are on the record saying that Elon Musk did not give them open access to the files. Instead, they told Twitter's lawyers what they were looking for, and the lawyers then decided what material to hand over. Much of it proved newsworthy. The U.S. security establishment took a hit. But nothing was revealed that Musk did not want out there. It's not as though the journalists were speaking truth to power, the corporate kind. Power, in the form of Elon Musk, was dictating its version of the truth, a selective one, to them. There's a little hard to totally know because we don't know exactly what limitations have been put on. But as a journalist going into that situation, you've got to be aware that the company and its CEO have complicated interests and your basic job needs to be to, to uh, seek out a more robust set of points of view. I mean, I'm lucky enough to be an activist and not a journalist, so this question doesn't have to keep me personally up at night, but it brings uh, significant questions about whether a journalist can um, ethically engage in reporting like this, given the types of restrictions employed in trying to release this information. And that said, that's not to say that there isn't newsworthy information. And I just think that's ironically recreating the same things that Musk is complaining about. It's not transparent, it's not free and open, and it's not democratic, and it's being influenced by powerful individuals toward their own gains. To the Middle East now, where the killing of yet another Palestinian by Israeli soldiers has led to more misinformation from the army that Israeli news outlets have dutifully reported. Flo Phillips has been following this story.
Richard, this past Sunday, Israeli soldiers shot and killed a 45-year-old father of four, Ahmed Kala, at a checkpoint in the occupied West Bank. The Israeli military initially reported Kala confronted soldiers with a knife. None of the eyewitnesses interviewed by international news outlets said they saw a knife, but that was the story reported as fact by several Israeli news outlets that evening. One outlet, the news website Ynet, even tweeted a photo of a knife. Then this mobile phone footage, filmed at a distance, appeared online. Although the video is somewhat unclear, the Israeli military soon changed its story. The knife was gone. Instead, Israelis were told their soldiers had stopped a, quote, suspicious vehicle in a routine inspection and had shot Kala after he tried to seize one of their weapons. Again, none of the eyewitnesses quoted in international news reports mentioned anything about Kala doing that. They say it all started when an Israeli stun grenade hit Kala's car. This pattern of misinformation, with the Israeli military changing its narrative, keeps playing out. We saw it after the killing of Al Jazeera's Shireen Abu Akleh, when the army initially suggested her killer was Palestinian. Ahmed Kala is one of 185 Palestinians killed by Israeli security forces in just over a year. No Israeli soldier has been charged in any of those cases. Human rights groups say they operate with impunity. Another way to put it, a license to kill. Thanks, Flo. Investigative reporting can be one of the toughest jobs in journalism. It is detailed, painstaking, sometimes lonely work, and often it pits you against individuals and institutions that are powerful. Information can be hard to find, sources can get intimidated into silence, and once you've navigated all of that and put your piece out, you can get slapped. A slap, a strategic lawsuit against public participation, is a legal tactic that is used almost exclusively against journalists, academics, and public interest activists. Once the legal proceedings are set into motion, the defendants can get buried, professionally and financially. Over the past decade, more and more slaps have been filed against reporters, particularly in London, which is the slap capital of the world. The Listening Post's Minakshi Ravi now on slaps and the silencing effect they're having on journalism. In Serbia, the news website Creek has a reputation. Its journalists cover organized crime and corruption. They've been at it for years. On any given day, these journalists face at least 10 slaps. Gazeta Wyborcza is one of Poland's largest newspapers, one of the very few media outlets that takes on the ruling Law and Justice Party. Since 2015, journalists of the paper have been slapped more than 70 times. The Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, OCCRP, supports newsrooms across the globe in their investigative work and in pushing back against legal harassment. In 2020, the OCCRP's own co-founder was targeted with a slap. We worked on a story, on a, on a project, investigative project called the Azerbaijani Laundromat, where we exposed this 2.9 billion US dollars worth of money laundering originating in Azerbaijan. We investigated this case where money 
was paid to the European politicians to launder the image of Azerbaijan in Europe at a time when the government in Baku, the Aliyev regime, was really cracking down on the free press, on activists, on his political opposition. Suddenly I was served with this court case that was filed by a citizen from Baku, Azerbaijan, against me, a Romanian citizen, but in a court in London, in the UK. So I was uh, really surprised. And <laughs> this is how I learned the, the hard way what a SLAP is. It stands for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. And it is designed to prevent comment on matters of public interest. Foreign journalists can be sued in the British courts, and that is another hallmark of a SLAP. The English court will have jurisdiction where there has been a reputation in this country. And it is not at all uncommon for a businessman who is based in another country to have some sort of reputation here. So it is not particularly difficult to bring a libel case here. I think there was one example where only 23 copies of a particular newspaper were published here. The vast majority of the publication was elsewhere. But those 23 copies were enough for the claim to be brought here. And the defendant has still got the whole burden of proving the truth for 23 copies as they would for 23 million copies. While numerous slaps are filed in the UK every year, such lawsuits are not exclusive to Britain. They're used around the world, alleging defamation in some cases, misinformation in others, sometimes even citing national security, all to suppress public interest reporting. Slaps are tools of intimidation dressed up as legal cases, and they're very easy to identify. The lawsuits are filed by rich and powerful subjects of public interest reporting, and they often target individual journalists. An isolated defendant is much easier to break down than a media institution. One more thing about slaps. The harder and more expensive the case is for the journalist in question to fight, the better it is for the person suing, the claimant. And that's another reason why London, England, is such a slap hotspot. England is commonly known as the libel capital of the world um, because in our jurisdiction, it's really handed to a claimant on a plate. It's the burden on the defendant to prove the truth of the allegation. The claimant doesn't have to prove that it's untrue. They have to prove the facts and get the, get the sources to come forward and agree to give evidence. And that sounds really straightforward, but it's actually very, very difficult. This sort of journalism is quite often relying on good sources who need to be anonymous, on whistleblowers, on people who can't very easily put their heads above the parapet. That means it's quite expensive and difficult and risky to defend a claim. We at Realtid started reviewing Swedish businessman Svante Kumlin's operation in late 2020. We published eight articles before we were sued in London for 13 million pounds. The lawsuit took place in the UK for a number of reasons. Firstly, Svante Kumlin simply would not have been able to sue us in Sweden. In Sweden, you can't sue journalists. You can only sue the editor in charge. Another reason is that it is expensive to pay lawyers and defend yourself. I've heard that it's ten times more expensive to fight your case in London compared to Sweden, for example. The financial aspect of defending yourself against a slap can be onerous, and that is often the point. 
There are the legal costs, of course. But if you add complications of jurisdiction, such as a case filed in London for a matter located elsewhere entirely, then the costs of logistics, such as travel, start piling up. Libel cases are phenomenally expensive to defend. What has happened in the last, let's say, 10 years is that very wealthy people who are employing a very expensive and very clever law firms, not simply to bring uh, a claim under the libel law, but also to manage analytics, to use PR companies, to do um, a wholesale change in their reputation. And as part of that, we've seen the growth of slaps. At OCCRP, we do have currently as a network 43 slaps against us, 43. Few are in London, at least one in Switzerland, and at least one in the US, but most slaps are local. For instance, our member center called Krik in Serbian, they do have 11 or 12 cases right now against them. So what uh, OCCRP is doing, we're building our own defense fund. This fund is very, very important as is cooperating with lawyers who are willing to defend journalists at very, very low cost compared to the uh, to the cost in London. I mean, an hour with a, uh, uh, with a lawyer in London can cost hundreds of pounds. A journalist has to be able to earn money. You don't get paid for sitting in court and defending old articles. So there are lots of suggestions about what can be done to prevent slaps. For example, giving judges an opportunity to throw out a case when it is clear that it's an attempt to silence a journalist. In addition, there should also be some kind of punishment for those who use slaps. There have also been proposals that it should not be possible to sue a journalist in a country other than the one in which the journalist works. This can help prevent so-called forum shopping, where a person who wants to silence a journalist chooses a country, a legal jurisdiction, that suits that person best. For many investigative journalists, anti-slap measures are an urgent need, especially in countries like the UK, where so many cases are filed. As a tool of legal harassment, slaps are very effective. They trap journalists in judicial quicksand and send a message to others who might contemplate doing the same kind of investigative work. A message that says, don't bother, it'll only cause trouble. Being on the receiving end of a, a slap lawsuit for a journalist is very intimidating. Their house is potentially on the line, their family is on the line. Instead of earning a living, they're having constantly to go back to whatever it was that they published. They're asked, what did you do? What did you investigate? Why didn't you ask this extra question? Why did you write it in this way? I do know for a fact that there are many journalists that self-censor where they don't publish sometimes stories that they've worked hard on because they were afraid of slaps. That was in the case of, of one story, but it will have a chilling effect on subsequent stories. And this is exactly what the people behind the slaps, what the law firms behind the slaps count on, on the fact that you're going to think twice, three times, you're going to stop on your tracks, you're not going to be able to continue with your uh, reporting. And finally, there's been a lot of news coverage out there about classified documents and American presidents. Presidents past, although he still won't admit it, and present. On the question of equivalence, there is none. Donald Trump took his documents to Florida. 
He refused to admit that to investigators, then got hit with subpoenas, search warrants, and eventually got raided. Joe Biden's own lawyers found his documents. They alerted the authorities and willingly gave them up. Rather than show you the news coverage, some of which has been just plain silly, we'll leave you with a clip that's meant to be exactly that. Los Angeles-based internet comedian Austin Nasso with some pretty good impersonations of Trump and Biden talking us through this story. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. So, Donald, where do you put your classified documents? I leave mine in the restroom or on the coffee table for guests. This year, I use mine as stocking stuffers. Sometimes I take Snapchats with mine, which is very safe, by the way, because they disappear in 10 seconds. Sometimes I use mine as a bib so I don't get applesauce on my shirt. I'm stitching mine together into a suit and wearing it to a gala. I'm handing mine out with crayons so your kids all the wrong side of track like Slim Jim and Tall Bob.